Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. We're coming to you here from the Calm Radio Studios on Arundel Country in Mbantua, Alice Springs here in Central Australia on uh, 8 FM 100.5 here in Alice Springs. We're also broadcasting to uh, all nations through Vast Channel 911 and we're also coming to you online via the Karma website at karma.com.au. Today is uh, Tuesday, the 27th of August 2019. I'm your host, uh, Kyle Dowling, and I'll be taking you up until... uh up until 12 o'clock today. Uh, coming up on Strong Voices, uh, First, Nations, First Nations Australians are now more likely to be jailed than African Americans, according to new analysis of official data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. In, uh, 2000, in the year 2000, African Americans were jailed at more than twice the rate of First Nations peoples, but uh, in 2017, African Americans' incarceration rates had fallen that below that of Indigenous Australians. We're going to be hearing more about that shortly. Also, new legislation passed in Queensland uh, aims to help keep children out of police watchhouses. Amnesty International is an organisation which runs many campaigns, including one which helps to end the overrepresentation of First Nations peoples in detention. And we'll be hearing from uh, Joe Joel Clark, a Amnesty International Indigenous rights advocate, will be discussing those changes in that bill. Also, we discussed uh, yesterday how Australia could potentially be seeing an increase in the number of First Nations peoples in the film industry due to a new initiative in South Australia and the Northern Territory. The initiative is called uh, Centralised, and today we're going to be hearing from a Screen Media Productions trainee about the web series uh, development initiative part, and we're also going to be hearing a bit about a film he created. And of course, though, we are going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. We're going to go to a track now and then we'll be right back with our first interview. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Come Radio. Well, First Nations Australians are now more likely to be jailed than African Americans and a quarter of Australians' Indigenous men born in the 1970s have served time in prison. This is all according to a new analysis from uh, official data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Labor frontbencher Dr Andrew Lee, who was a former professor of economics at the Australian National University before entering politics, says as a nation we need to recognise the social cost of mass incarceration. Dr Lee says despite a fall in crime rates, incarceration had spiked by 130% since 1985 and other factors were now contributing to increased imprisonment rates for First Nations Australians. Well, I think we've long imagined the United States being the place with the highest incarceration rate in the world. 
Uh, what's striking about uh, my study is now looks as though Indigenous Australians are incarcerated at a higher rate than African Americans. That only changed in 2016, uh, following a, a period in which African American incarceration rates were falling and Indigenous incarceration rates are rising. Fully 2.5% of Australia's Indigenous popula adult population uh, are now behind bars. And almost a quarter of Indigenous men born in the 1970s have spent time in jail. And jail's become a, a frighteningly normal part of the lives of many Indigenous Australians. What's going wrong? And basically, why are the rates still so high? Well, it's not crime. Uh, your chances of being murdered now are half what they were in the 1980s. Your chances of being robbed are uh, down by 50%. Uh, your chances of having your car stolen are down by two-thirds. Uh, what's changed is that police are more likely to push for arrest and courts are more likely to push for custodial sentence. We also have this trend of increasing numbers of prisoners not having been sentenced but awaiting trial. Uh, it used to be that about a sixth of the prison population were awaiting trial and uh, now it's around a third of the people in jail haven't been sentenced. They're just sitting there because their court date hasn't come up yet. What action is necessary to stem the tide. And again, you have to question the intergenerational impacts of that. Well, absolutely, Paul. Uh, we know that the average um, prisoner has 1.8 children, which means that uh, for everyone in jail, there's almost two kids out there uh, whose mental well-being, school performance and family income are being impacted by the fact they have a parent behind bars. Uh, we need to recognise the social cost of mass incarceration. Uh, and the fact that uh, less than a fifth of people in jail attain a formal qualification. Uh, prison is far more often a uh, university for crime than it is a place where people attain formal qualifications. Uh, we need to improve the quality of educational services in prisons, uh, but we also need to question whether it makes sense to keep on locking up such a huge share of people. Uh, the technology for monitoring people outside jail uh, has improved substantially since 1985. Uh, but yet we're using the old technology of locking up people behind bars far more often than before. The question is why, when the crime rate has fallen so substantially, the incarceration rate has risen so markedly. Uh, with this, Australia is much safer on many dimensions than it was in the mid-1980s. Uh, and yet the share of Australians in prison has gone up markedly. Uh, if you go back to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in the early 1990s, uh, at that stage we were incarcerating around 1% of Indigenous Australians. Now we're incarcerating 2.5% of Indigenous Australians. Uh, and yet the uh, crime rate in Australia uh, is significantly lower than before. Uh, one of the really frightening statistics I came across in uh, preparing this report on incarceration was a study by Anna Ferrante, which used uh, arrest data from Western Australia. And she found, if you looked at arrests, charges and summons, nine out of ten Indigenous men born in the 1970s had been arrested, charged or summoned before they turned 30. I mean, that's, that's deeply disturbing, isn't it? It's an extraordinary figure. It suggests that uh, only a tenth of Indigenous men in WA, born in the 1970s, are uh, avoiding police action by the time they, by the time they turn 30. Uh, and it is difficult, I think, for anyone to imagine uh, that the rates of uh, 
wrongdoing among that community are so high as to require nine-tenths of, of, of our uh, Indigenous men and WA to be arrested, charged or summoned. Andrew, the uh, West Australian Police Commissioner did in fact uh, acknowledge and respond that the uh, police service in that state had perhaps been a little over-exuberant in their uh, treatment of the First Nations peoples, but turning it around and turning around institutionalised racism within organisations such as police and courts and, uh, you know, right across all of the services involved, it will require a big effort. That's absolutely right. Earlier this month, uh, I was in Bidjanga in a community in Kimberley talking with people there about the alternatives to mass incarceration. Uh, one of the things they spoke about was the use of uh, the uh, tra- traditional processes uh, of bringing victim and offender face-to-face uh, and having an opportunity for the offender to apologise to the victim. Uh, there's a tree in Bidjianga that, uh, that, that's used, uh, and that brings the com- community together uh, in a way that tries to seek to repair the wrong that's been done. Uh, it involves the local police, uh, and uh, uh, you had the, uh, the uh, Treasurer and Minister for Indigenous Affairs being wired up as part of the, uh, the announcement. Uh, so there's good work that's being done. Uh, there's just too little of it right now. The aim of incarcerating people isn't meant to put them back into the community worse than when they came in. I would have hoped and thought that the whole idea was about keeping people out of prison. Absolutely. I mean, when we uh, incarcerate people, we're aiming to uh, bring about some degree of rehabilitation. We're aiming to deter others. Uh, we're aiming to, uh, to to ensure that people who are at particular who pose a particular risk to the community uh, aren't there. Uh, but these these effects are all going to diminish as you increase the share of people in jail, as you move from uh, locking up murderers uh, to locking up people who haven't paid fines. Uh, at that stage, you're moving to uh, to a population where you're, you're putting people in jail, they're being exposed to this university of crime, uh, potentially they're coming out more likely to commit crimes in the future than they were before they went to jail. If Australia as a nation is going to address this appalling statistic, a former uh, Minister for Aboriginal Affairs said that he wasn't prepared to take on board uh, incarceration rates as a close-the-gap issue or concern, uh, something that had to be accountable. So the uh, coalition government is perhaps still of the mind that uh, they'll work it out, but at the same time, uh, the rates aren't going the right way. They're certainly not, and I believe we can have uh, less crime and less incarceration, Uh, that there are smarter criminal justice policies uh, which will allow us to reduce the huge cost of imprisonment, which is uh, uh, costing the Australian taxpayers billions of dollars more than it would have if we'd kept early 90s incarceration rates, uh, and is able to keep the streets safer. Uh, Because when you lock up uh, low-risk offenders... Uh, put them in proximity with people who've done much more serious crimes. Uh, you're making the population more dangerous, not safer. Prisoners who have been put away for non-serious crimes, non-payment of fines, and I mean, they are an enormous cost to the taxpayer. And at the same time, those people, if they remained in their community and were doing services within the community to pay off whatever the debt may be to society, that would be an enormous contribution and also the creation or the potential creation of jobs within community if by employing people in those communities who 
would otherwise be in prison and hopefully putting other resources into communities, you're creating job skills and training. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you think about the cost of prison, it's around $300 a day. Uh, you can get a very nice five-star hotel room in the middle of a big city for that. Uh, and so these sorts of deterrence programs, youth-focused training programs, don't have to be that effective in order to be worth the money. Uh, jail costs about 10 times as much as education programs. Uh, so we need to, to have more of a focused look at the education and training programs, uh, thinking carefully about justice reinvestment and about how there might be uh, smarter ways of making the streets safer uh, than locking up 2.5% of Indigenous Australian adults. That was Labor frontbencher Dr Andrew Lee there speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing from uh, Amnesty International very soon. We're going to go to a quick break first and then we'll be right back. G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling, this Tuesday morning. Well, Amnesty International has welcomed changes to youth justice legislation in Queensland but they continue to urge the government to raise the age of criminal responsibility. The Youth Justice and Other Legislation Amendment Bill 2019 was passed through Queensland Parliament on Friday. The bill aims to keep children out of police watch houses by reducing the time it takes to finalise proceedings in the youth justice system. Reports earlier this year from the ABC revealed some of the horrific conditions children were experiencing at the Brisbane City Watch House. According to the Queensland Government, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people account for more than half of children sentenced uh, to detention. Yesterday I spoke with uh, Amnesty International Indigenous Rights Advocate Joel Clark, who says the changes are incredibly important. We did see really shocking footage coming out of the watch houses. We recorded more than 2,600 individual human rights violations against children just at Brisbane City Watch House in one year. We know that this was happening right across the state. The government's move to pass this amendment, a law, is an incredibly important one. Queensland is one of the only states now that require magistrates to use the principle of last resort when putting children behind bars. We feel that this will make an incredibly uh, significant difference to the way children are treated in the justice system. And what it should mean is that young people are more likely to be placed back into community, back into families, back into programs and supports that they require to address criminalised behaviour rather than being put behind bars. Now, I understand some of the other changes also prioritise um, releasing a child on bail except under very specific circumstances. You know, talking about the risk with committing more crimes or endangering others and things like that. What are your thoughts on that aspect as well? The bail system in Queensland has been designed uh, for so long in a way that makes it more likely for kids to be put behind bars um, and sometimes in a very minor crimes. These reforms, again, will make it easier for kids to be placed in the support that they require rather than being locked up. It's incredibly disappointing to see the opposition last week try to amend the bill to remove the clause around taking breach of bail away as a crime. What that crime does means that kids who uh, might be out on bail, if they can't afford a train ticket and, uh, and skip a train and they get taught, these kids end up back in front of court, back behind bars for very small misdemeanours. Um, it, clogs the, it clogs the system up. It puts kids behind bars for very, for very small matters. Um, we need to be prioritising getting kids 
into community and into the supports that they need. And this bill is a, uh, a significant step towards doing that. And in terms of that rehabilitation and, and, and I guess, you know, creating those pathways to actually stop people in the first place coming into contact with the justice system, what, what sort of measures do you think need to be implemented and things that need to particularly change in order to see less uh, Indigenous youth coming into contact with the justice system? The government has made pretty significant steps in the right direction and towards in regards to prevention and diversion, which is very welcomed. Significant funding into programs that will address the reasons why kids end up behind bars. But the key thing that the government needs to do as soon as possible is raise the age of criminal responsibility. Australia is one of the only countries that still locks kids up as young as 10. We have 10-year-olds behind bars in youth justice prisons right across the country. Uh, This is unacceptable. The median global age is 14. The United Nations says it should be 14. Uh, All the experts in Australia says it's 14. But the vet daft, Guy Farmer and those in charge in Queensland are ignoring those calls. We know that if we raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to at least 14, we'll be getting around 15% of the kids who are currently in youth prisons out into the supports that they need, rather than being stuck in the quicksand of youth justice in these universities of crime where they're more likely to become long-term serious offenders. And in terms of that process of rehabilitation and, and making sure that, you know, children aren't coming into contact with the justice system in the first place, what, what role do you think Aboriginal uh, people, community and organisations play in that? Yeah, when we're talking about the fact that it's 26 times more likely for Indigenous kids to be locked up than their non-Indigenous peers, it is very clear that Indigenous-led organisations, Indigenous-led solutions are a key part of the puzzle. We know our research shows that Indigenous-led programs are much more successful and much more efficient and effective at uh, ensuring that, for one, Indigenous kids don't end up in the youth justice system, and two, and if they do, that they don't uh, re-offend. Government definitely needs to prioritise these types of programs. Now, as you mentioned, there there were a a range of different programs that are doing sort of good things in terms of you know, stopping people coming into contact with the justice system. But in terms of that, I guess, you know, the structures that are sort of there at the moment and that outlook on youth and, and youth crime and things like that, are you hopeful, I guess, that a bill like this can sort of change some of those perspectives so we aren't seeing, you know, as we mentioned, really horrific scenes of seeing, uh, you know, young people locked up in police watch houses? Yeah, well, I think it's very clear especially since we exposed these violations uh, in Queensland, um, since we saw the horrific footage that we did in Dondale a few years ago in the Territory, it's very clear that the community is sick of these horrific incidents that keep on coming up every couple of years. Um, I think governments know that they're on notice from the community that we expect a much higher standard of care for children uh, if they are detained. Of course, uh, the preference is putting the systems in place and addressing the issues that make it so that kids are ending up in prison in the first place. Um, And that's where government's priority should be. They should be addressing the health factors uh, around this. We know that 9 out of of 10 Indigenous kids in rural areas have glue ears. If you can't hear your teacher and you're mucking up at school and likely to be suspended, that's an easy path to criminalisation. Uh, We know that's where the community... Um, lies as well. 
where they expect the government to be stepping in and addressing these issues and providing the support to the people that need it most. That was Amnesty International Indigenous Rights Advocate Joel Clark there. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country very soon, but we are going to go to a quick song first and then we'll be back with that news. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices, and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio Karma's uh, Paul Wiles. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, and good morning, listeners. Also, good morning to Damien Williams. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Carl. Well, we'll start with you, Paul. What do you have for us this morning? Well, uh, down to New South Wales, where uh, a family's fighting to defend their traditional country from mining is uh, currently suing the Environment Minister after she rejected a heritage protection bid over, um, rather than uh, um, giving the OK for a controversial Chinese coal project. Um, the uh, last month, the uh, Gomorrah traditional custodi- custodians failed in a bid to have uh, sacred sites in um, northwest New South Wales preserved and protected from development due to cultural significance and importance. The um, Environment Minister Susan Lay rejected their application on the grounds that potential jobs de- generated from the mine were more important than cultural preservation. Uh, well, uh, we've seen and heard this uh, particular argument for uh, many, many years. It's an ongoing discussion. And at, at what stage do First Nations people's rights and responsibilities to their country uh, ever take precedence over a mining venture? And it would be quite interesting to see if any sort of action comes from this. I mean, I imagine that would set quite an interesting precedent there and could potentially obviously open up any sort of further action from other places if... if well, know. very much. And uh, I I think, um, you know, it's the, uh, uh, the start of what could turn into something quite uh, significant, um, uh, bearing in mind that uh, the environment minister does have uh, duty, care of duty and duty of care to protect the environment. And... Um, on the grounds that, uh, you know, it was a sacred site uh, with um, significant cultural uh, um, recognition for the um, Gomorrah mob, um, perhaps uh, a bit more time and effort might might have been necessary. I mean, uh, as we've seen right across the country, uh, big dollars talk. And um, when we hear about uh, big mining projects um, being uh, more important, than the protection of country, um, well, it opens up a, a whole uh, range of conversation around uh, uh, what are we protecting and what future uh, will our kids inherit. Mm. On to you now, Damien. What do you have for us this morning? Um, just uh, this one's from The Guardian. A first-of-its-kind study of racism in Australian schools has found that one in three students um, reported being the victim of racial discrimination by their peers. Uh, researchers from the Australian National University and Western Sydney University surveyed 4,600 primary and secondary students at a government school in New South Wales and Victoria on their experience 
experiences of racial discrimination in schools. Uh, the study f- found that 40% of students in in five years to, from years five to nine from non-Anglo or European backgrounds reported experiencing racial discrimination by their peers. So, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, a bit of, a shocking bit of um, research in uh, just how kids can be in schools and, and um, yeah, it's a bit scary. Just looking at the, the first paragraph there, Damo, a first-of-its-kind study. I mean, that in itself has to ask and open up a number of questions. Why hasn't there been any other studies done? I mean, were people uh, not interested in, in finding out about racial discrimination within schools? And I think a big thing as well for, for a lot of these things is, uh, you know, these still, the I guess, mindsets of people that a lot of the things that they perhaps aren't saying or, or doing in these sort of environments that they don't realise that it is actually racist. Mm. And it's definitely very hard when you're going through that situation. I mean, school obviously is... You know, it's it's a very full-on thing for kids at the time, especially if you're going through changes through that period of time. It's through those years as well. And then to have something like racism thrown in to the mix while you're going through those experiences, it it can really have a very significant impact on people. And and a lot of those experiences, um, you know, will... um You're you're taught racism. You're not born racist. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that... I've experienced that in school. Um, I was just going to say, Damo. I mean, um, you're a pretty, pretty big bloke. I mean, did you experience racism? Or yeah, it was a lot of it. Like Carl was saying, it's, it's subtle as well. It's it's sort of like looks or even some sayings that we find now that were racist back then didn't weren't considered racist. Right. So it's a bit of a change of um, culture and stuff like that. And and um, yeah, just. You know, for finding out that someone won't play with you because you're Aboriginal, because like they went home for the holidays and come back after being with their parents uh, and stuff. And I mean, it's laughable. Mm. Uh, um, we can laugh. I shouldn't say it's laughable. We can laugh, but I mean, in reality, I mean, uh, you know, what um, a, a many Aboriginal people take on um, and have to live with them. Um, isn't acceptable and wasn't acceptable. I mean, times are changing, yeah. and times have changed. But again, at the end of the day, the the culture of racism obviously uh, is something that's handed down. Mm. Uh, it's an intergenerational thing, and uh, as you've said, people aren't born racist; they they learn to become racist. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a track now and then we'll be right back with our final story. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Well, Joseph Egger is a Karma Screen Media Productions trainee and has been working on a documentary that takes a look at the life of Aboriginal media pioneer Francis Kelly, who was one of the leaders to set up Walpri Media in and around Yundamu. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with Joseph about his project and also a bit about the centralised projects that will be run here at Karma Productions. He's a Jabrula, I'm a Jakumara, um, so Francis is my father. So yeah, I've, I grew up watching uh, Manuana, uh, Bush Mechanics, so I was always familiar and aware of Francis, especially within um, film and media. 
Yes, yeah, so I've always sort of been drawn to him and his story and I'd sort of realised that no one had actually looked at his, his history, you know. Everyone had sort of documented um, bush mechanics that's been highly covered um, and manuana, which is sort of, sort of an integral part of that. But, yeah, I was always just fascinated with who he was outside of the spotlight and yeah so I was really I really want to know his story and yeah so I got a really um lucky opportunity with NITV um our stories initiative for young up and up and coming filmmakers and we we got a grant and we went ahead and um decided to make a half an hour doco on Francis yeah and cool and so did you like you said you wanted to focus more about more around his life and and um you know how he got into it how, how did he start doing his media um yeah well we we sort of went back um we went to uh mount Dorian station so lawn lawn Bogalong was the traditional area on mount Dorian station so it's about another 60 k's west of Unamu. So out there they had sort of an old homestead. Now the buildings have all sort of fallen down, but it's where he grew up and they were mining on the site during that time when Francis was growing up. And, yeah, it was just... It was good to follow his story from leaving that settlement, then transitioning into the Indemu community once it was established, and then following his journey into all different sorts of work, then realising how the opportunity came up with media, which was... Walper Media at the start, which was already formed, I think it might have been five, six years already in place, where Francis was sort of invited over by another uncle, Kumanjay Granitz, and and then from there Francis sort of sort of slot into that media, which he was perfect. And so, when you are starting on a doco or a, or a feature film or anything like that, um, what kind of process do you go through to try and capture that story? How did you um, capture Francis's story? First thing is yeah, doing doing your research um, and really being clear in what direction you want to go, and and then also being able to compromise with with the person, your talent that you, you you're trying to sort of convey their story. With Francis, it was very hard at the time because he was, at the time, he was sort of chair of the Land Council, so it was very difficult to get on to him. Um, so, yeah, he had a lot of stuff. He's a very busy man, so I just sort of um, work with his schedule, work with our schedule, but obviously, you know, schedules, they're hard. Once once you're set in concrete, you've got to keep moving, and um, we ended up getting Francis, and um, it was very important to, yeah, like I said, to film him back at where he was originally born, which is at Mount Dorian Station. How long did it take, the whole process? Um, it took a few months, but, um, yeah, it was just, it's, it's important to be thorough in in whatever work you do and, and understand and have, be well informed with your research to sort of, to genuinely, to do their story, you know, I, I feel justice, you know, because at the end of the day, um, we're telling someone else's story, so it's important to to inform the audience as accurately as possible. And so where can we get a copy or when is Chaburula uh, Man of Media being uh, released? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, it was aired on NITV, followed Frida Glenn, one of the founders um, of Karma, 
so yeah, I was very fortunate. We 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 aired straight after her documentary, um, "She Who Must Be Obeyed," which was yeah, very exciting thing for for me and my family um but where we can access it is on sbs on demand and um i think we have a there's a facebook page on our karma radio website so yeah just feel free to check it out and yeah you know like you said ed after one of the founders of of this place karma radio karma music radio productions and tech uh you know and was francis was one of those men one of those people who started media out in Yundamir area, hey? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. so the, the, the whole aim was it to sort of follow Francis' life. But, yeah, really, really highlight what role and significant impact he's had on, especially Indigenous media, right throughout Australia, really. He's, he's been a major catalyst in Indigenous-led media th- from community and, and having that... Having that control from a community base and an indigenous indigenous perspective is really important, you know. And, and sort of going along those same sort of lines, you know, trying to develop those new up and coming filmmakers and stuff like that, and and getting our mob into media. So we're going to be talking a bit about the centralised initiative, which links Northern Territory and South Australia filmmakers together. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so what it is, it's it's sort of a, a new initiative to sort of have South Australia and, and, and Northern Territory sort of um, web developers, writers, sort of directors, anyone sort of looking to promote a new idea put towards this project and really get their things, their ideas out there. So it's a really great initiative with having South Australia and Northern Territory both come together and collaborate. I think it's a really great opportunity for a lot of Indigenous up-and-coming filmmakers. How important is it, you know, to try and be able to give these filmmakers, like yourself as well, and, and other other ones, to, to to really showcase and bring forward the um, Aboriginal style of, of film and storytelling? Um, well, I think it's really important because now we're really... Um, like with with this new web series development initiative, um, so in, in conjunction with Karma, um, SAFC, South Australian Film Corp, and the Screen NT, um, I think we're very fortunate now to have such great access and opportunity for all Indigenous people, up and coming, uh, developed, um, just ideas sitting there that the people now have an opportunity to really come together and engage and engage a, a wide Australian audience with with our stories. And there's no shortage of those stories as well. Oh, um, well, for me, it's exciting. Like, we've just, um, just come off uh, the Robbie Hood set and mm. I've seen how well-received that's been. And, um, yeah, so these things are... If if anything, just more more inspiring for me, and I'd imagine a lot of other young Indigenous up and coming filmmakers. And, and for those uh, looking to you know be a part of this initiative, uh, centralised, how can they do that? Um, yeah, so you can go onto Screen NT. Um, the website, um, there's a link there that for centralised, and it'll go in depth about what it is. Um, I know that. Um, you can access uh, us here at Karma um, on our radio website. Um, yeah, there'll be a link there, so just feel free to have a look and 
get involved. So the applications are open now. So they've been open since the 13th and they'll close on the 6th of September. So you've got a bit of time to get in there and um, check it out. So there's a little bit of time, but yeah, um, like anything, you got to get the ball rolling and just get your applications in because the more, the merrier. Also, if, if you're wanting to find out more about um, Centralised and this new web series initiative, um, you can get on to Nick Lee, um, head of the productions unit here in, in Karma, and he'll be more than happy to guide you through the, the process. On that note, uh, Joe Eager, thanks very much for t- talking to us here on Karma Radio. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was uh, Joseph Egger there, Karma Screen Media Productions trainee, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this Tuesday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you miss any of the stories that we've played for you on the show today, make sure you check out our uh, podcast of the episode, which will be up on Karma's SoundCloud. And we'll be back the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Strong Voices. Good job, Eager.